All right, let's take our Bibles this morning. <clears throat> Turn to Acts chapter 23. <clears throat> Acts 23 this morning. And we'll just read verse 11 again. Acts 23, verse 11, it says, In the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Now when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying they would, ne- <coughs> would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Let's have a word of prayer. <coughs> Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for this day. <coughs> thank you for the opportunity to be here and to... Uh, come and spend time singing praise to your name. Thank you, Lord, for your wonderful word. We thank you for uh, the great truths that we can uh, learn therein, uh, truths about you. And Lord, we pray that today you would help us to focus on you as we uh, consider this passage. Lord, I pray that you would uh, empower me through the Spirit now and give me wisdom and guidance that you can give. And that, Lord, it would be your words and your thoughts. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts today that you refresh us through your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. It's not a good start. <coughs> um, last time, if you remember, uh, it's been a couple of weeks, we were in the book of Acts, and we were looking at uh, Paul standing before the Sanhedrin. <coughs> you remember he was brought before the Sanhedrin by the, the chief captain. He was brought there because... The chief captain still doesn't know what it is that Paul has uh, been accused of, what it is that he's done wrong. And so he brought him before the Sanhedrin in an effort to get to the bottom of it all. Uh, but of course, instead, we saw the, the council erupt in division. Uh, they, they ended up fighting amongst themselves over the truth of the resurrection uh, because of what Paul had said in his testimony before them. And Paul, as we saw, was caught in the midst of this argument. And it was to the point where he had to be rescued by the captain. Uh, If you look there in verse 10, it says, uh, When there arose a great dissension, uh, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. Uh, Basically, he feared he was going to be pulled apart. Uh, by these two uh, warring sides and so the captain had to race in and rescue Paul and we saw Paul back in his jail cell Uh, you know we saw an apostle in need of some encouragement you know you think about everything he'd done in Jerusalem basically everything he did seemed to fail it seemed to uh, produce no results at least on the surface and so Paul was probably feeling a little bit down a little bit discouraged he sat in his cell that night and the Lord arrived to encourage the Apostle Paul. And we saw that in verse 11. It says, In the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Now the Lord arrives here with exactly what Paul needs to hear. The Lord tells him to be of good cheer. Essentially he says, you know, Paul, trust me, I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. I'm in control of all this and I'm not finished with you yet. I have more for you to do. He tells Paul that just as he's been faithful testifying in Jerusalem, he's going to testify of the Lord in 
Rome. And this is a promise that you know Paul is going to take with him now in the months ahead. This promise that he's going to get to Rome. You know there was numerous trials that he would face uh, in the coming months, and you know these words would have rang true in his mind through all of that uh, that was to come. And you know the very first of those trials was to immediately arrive. It's the very next day, in fact, uh, this trial arrives. There's a plot against the apostle uh, to kill him. And, you know, this, of course, is nothing new, is it? You know, Paul, from the very start of his ministry, has faced plots against his life. Uh, Not just plots to stop his ministry, plots to actually kill him, to put him to death. You know, in Acts chapter 9, just after he got saved, uh, the Jews plotted to kill him at Damascus. And remember, he had to be let down over the wall in a basket. And then in the same chapter later on, we saw him in Jerusalem. And again, the Jews are seeking to kill him. So he has to flee from Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 13, he was driven out of Antioch in Pisidia. In Acts 14, they sought to stone him at Iconium. And then they did stone him at Lystra. In Acts chapter 18, sorry, the Jews at Corinth plotted to have him arrested and put to death. Acts 20, the Jews in Ephesus plotted to kill him. You know, the point is, Paul has faced this all the way through his life, hasn't he? This isn't something new for the Apostle Paul. He's been plotted against right throughout his ministry. And, you know, it's always by his own people. It's always at the hands of the Jews. And once again here we find a plot to kill the Apostle Paul. You know, as always, what we see is that the Lord is sovereign, don't we? We see the sovereignty of God, that God is in control, that God is protecting his servants. And so as we focus on this passage this morning, I want us to really see the sovereignty of God in all this. Uh, God is in control of these events. And so we see, first of all, here this morning, the plot plot against the Apostle Paul. Look there in verse 12 again. It says, And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together, and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And they were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. As we said, during the night, Paul has been visited by the Lord. The Lord has stood by him <clears throat> and given him these words of encouragement. And now it's morning and, and we read that in the morning there's this plot that is now being hatched against the Apostle Paul. This plot to assassinate Paul. And we're told this group of fanatical Jews here numbers more than 40 men. That's verse 13. It says, and they, that, sorry, and they were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. So basically there's, there's more than 40 men who've all gathered together and they've all made this decision that they're going to assassinate, they're going to murder the Apostle Paul. You know, for them, justice was moving too slowly everything's happening too slowly for them and so basically they decide they're going to take things into their own hands now they're probably beginning to wonder if paul is going to be punished at all you know if, if the roman captain is going to do anything about paul and so they seek to take matters into their own hands here and we're told here in verse 12 that they're so fanatical in their desire to kill paul that they bound themselves under a curse Okay, verse 12, it says, And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. 
they bound themselves under a curse here. They, they make an oath that they're not going to uh, eat or drink until they've murdered Paul, until they've assassinated him, until they've dealt with him. In verse 13, the word conspiracy uh, reinforces this idea. It's a compound word that means to swear together. Okay? They, they swore together they were going to do this. And so they've bound themselves with this oath, with this promise that they're not going to eat or drink until Paul has been put to death. But you know, this was much more than just an oath amongst friends. It was much more than just an oath before man. They were making an oath or a promise before God. That's what they were doing here. You see, the word curse here in verse 12 is the Greek word anathematizo. Anathematizo, and we get our English word anathema from this. And it literally means devoted to destruction or set apart for divine judgments. That's what it's talking about, divine judgments. Uh, This word curse is the same word that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 1 where he speaks about those who distort the gospel. Just turn over there quickly, Galatians 1. In Galatians chapter 1, uh, we'll read from verse 6. It says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and will pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you, than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, than that ye have received, let him be accursed. That word accursed there is this same idea. It's the divine judgment, set apart for divine judgment, the judgment of God. And so the point here is in Acts 23, what these men are doing is, you see, they're so convinced that what they're, what they're doing here against Paul is the will of God, that they're placing themselves under the curse of God, that if they fail, God's going to judge them. That's essentially what this curse is. That's what this oath is. They're saying God will judge us if we do not finish this, if we do not complete this task, if we fail to carry through with killing Paul. You see, they had a real zeal for God. Okay, we need to understand that here. Okay? They had a zeal for God. They were fanatical for God. The problem was that their zeal was not according to knowledge, was it? We've talked about that before. They didn't have a, an understanding of Christ being their Messiah. Their, their zeal was not according to knowledge. And so they essentially thought they were doing the will of God. And so in doing so, they make this, this oath before God, calling God's judgment upon themselves if they fail to carry through with it. Now, the commentator Bruce uh, suggests that their oath probably followed the Old Testament formula. Uh, And it would have gone something like this, so may God do unto us, and more also, if we eat or drink anything until we have killed Paul. That's essentially what they're saying. May God do this unto us. May God do the same thing unto us if we eat or drink before we've killed Paul. Now, we see an example of this type of oath in the uh, Old Testament. 2 Samuel, let's just quickly turn there. In 2 Samuel chapter 3. 2 Samuel 3 and verse 35, it says, And when all the people 
came to cause David to eat meat while it was yet day, David swear, saying, So do God to me, and more also, if I taste bread or aught or aught else till the sun be down. You see David here making a, a similar oath before God. This is basically what these men were saying here. It's using this same kind of curse, this same kind of oath or promise before God, placing themselves under the divine judgment of God if they failed. The point is, they're serious about this, aren't they? They're fanatical about it, and they really do believe that they're doing the will of God. They're doing what God wants them to do. And the question then might be asked, you know, who are these 40 men? Who are they? Well, the truth is we're not exactly told, are we? We're not exactly told who these 40-plus men were. We're simply told that they are certain of the Jews. That's the start of verse 12. It says, And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together. We're just told they're certain of the Jews. And so we're left to speculate exactly who they are. Uh, Some believe that they were hardline Pharisees who didn't side with the scribes back in verse 9. Verse 9 says, And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And so some believe that they're Pharisees who didn't actually side with the scribes. Um, And this may be true because, as we'll see later on, it's Paul's family who find out about the plot. And this would then make sense because Paul's family has strong connections to who? The Pharisees. And so it may well be that these are Pharisees, hardline Pharisees who who rise up against Paul. Uh, There may also be here in verse 12 a suggestion that it's a combination of the two. Uh, Sadducees and Pharisees working together. Uh, Since the words at the start of verse 12 where it says, and when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together. Uh, Those words banded together mean a coalition or a secret combination. And so it may be this is a coalition of both Pharisees and Sadducees, all those who are unsympathetic towards Paul, joining together with a common cause. But you know, then others suggest that it's the fanatical Jews from Asia Minor. Remember the Jews who originally stirred up the trouble in the temple. Go back to Acts 21 with me. Acts 21 and verse 27 says, And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple, and hath polluted this holy place. For they had seen before him with him in the city Trophimus and Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And so these Jews from Asia, they were the ones who originally caused the problem in the temple. Now, if you remember, they... They had persistently caused Paul problems. Now, as he's traveling through Asia Minor, these are the ones causing him the issues. And like Paul, they traveled to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And when they saw Paul in the temple, they thought, hey, this is a chance to get rid of Paul. This is our opportunity to finally be rid of this one who's causing us so much trouble. And so it would make sense if it's these same group, the same group of Jews who now make this oath that they're going to kill Paul. 
And so there's those three possibilities. I mean, the reality is we can't say for sure, can we? You know, what we can say for sure is that they were hardened against the gospel, weren't they? They were hardened against uh, the fact that Christ was their Messiah and they were hardened against Paul and what he was teaching. Uh, We can say that for certain. They were hardened against him. You know, as we read on now in verse 14 and 15, we see these 40 men come to the chief priest and elders. Just read there, uh, Acts 23, verse 14, it says, And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a cur- great curse, that we will not eat, and, uh, sorry, that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now therefore ye with the council signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow as though you would inquire something more perfectly concerning him. And we, or ever he come near, are ready to kill him. We see now these 40 men, they come to the chief priests, they come to the elders, and they inform them of their oath. And they make the declaration there in verse 14, they said, we have bound ourselves under a great curse. Now literally what they're saying here is, They're saying we have anathematized ourselves under anathema. And basically it's a Hebrew idiom. Okay, It's a Hebrew idiom that they're using here. And it emphasizes the enormity and the seriousness of the vow they've undertaken. Okay, We've got to sort of understand this. This is a serious thing for a Jew to say and to to make an oath about, doing it like this under the curse of God. It's a serious thing. And they're stressing that here to the elders and the, the chief priests. And the chief priests would know how serious they are. Okay? This is not just a, a random little thing they're deciding to do. This is an oath, a vow of serious, seriousness that they've taken. And in order for their plot to have any chance of success, they need the Sanhedrin on side. They need the council to help them. And what they needed from them, from the chief priests and elders here, was for them to request that Paul be brought before them one more time. That's verse 15, isn't it? It says, Now therefore, ye with the council signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow, as though you would inquire something more perfectly concerning him. And we, or ever he come near, are ready to kill him. They need the council to make this request they need the council to to go to the chief captain and say bring paul down one more time because we want to interrogate or interview him a little bit more thoroughly we want to learn some more about what he's saying now basically what what they're doing here is they're asking the council to lie aren't they they're asking the council to um, get paul brought before them under false pretense and so they're asking the council to lie here to the chief captain. You know, given the commotion of the day before, this would have seemed like a reasonable request to the captain as well. He would have thought, okay, they want to do things right this time. It would have seemed like a reasonable request. You know, the plan was that on the way to the Sanhedrin, the assassins would ambush the Roman guards and Paul and kill him. That's what it says at the end of verse 15. It says, and we or ever he come near are ready to kill him. So they were going to lie in wait and they were going to attack Paul as he's being led to the Sanhedrin. You know, in this plot here, we see just how fanatical and how serious they are against Paul. You think about it, they're willing here to risk their lives by attacking Roman soldiers. This is a serious thing, isn't it? They're going to attack 
the centurions. They're going to attack the Roman soldiers, the Roman guards here. So they might put an end to Paul's life. Uh, The commentator Bruce writes this. He said, this plan bespeaks of the fanatical devotion of the conspirators. For Paul would be guarded by Roman soldiers and an attempt to assassinate him, whether it succeeded or not, would inevitably involve the assassins in heavy loss of life. That's how serious they are. They're willing to die, aren't they? Because not all these 40 men are going to survive if they attack Roman guards. Some of them are going to lose their lives. They're willing to die, such is their zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You know, the fact that the Sanhedrin here is willing to go along with all this is a sad testament, isn't it, to the state of the council. The state of the the hearts of these men who are supposed to be upholding God's holy standards. Whether these men thought it was right or not, it's still murder, isn't it? It's still murder, and the council is happy to go along with it. And we know that because later on in verse 20 it says, um, and, and he said, the Jews have agreed to desire thee that thou wouldest bring down Paul tomorrow into the council. And so they agree with this. They went along with this. They were going to make this request. Now it's a, it's a sad uh, testament to the corrupt nature of the council. You know, it's in keeping with what Paul had said right back at the start of the chapter in verse 3. Remember he said the high priest was a whited sepulcher, a hypocrite. Indeed, the whole council was corrupt to the point of wanting to commit murder. And so we've seen the plot. We've seen this plot against Paul's life. And now, secondly, this morning we see the plot uncovered. We see the plot uncovered. Let's just read verse 16. It says, And when Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait... He went and entered into the castle and told Paul. Now, as we read on now, verse 16 and onwards, we see that these 40 men, 40 plus men, and the council, they overlooked one important thing, didn't they? Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord is watching over him. They've overlooked that. They failed to understand that. He is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and God is watching over Paul from heaven. You see, God saw everything that was happening, didn't he? Every secret meeting that they were having, whispering and talking about this, God was there listening to every word. God saw it all. There was nothing hid from the Lord. Yeah, they might think they were in control. They might think they have the upper hand here. But the reality is that God is over all, isn't he? God is over all. Now, I was thinking about this truth this week and Psalm 2 came to mind. Let's just quickly turn there. Psalm 2, and I know it's talking about the Messiah, but the words just apply so well. Psalm 2, verse 1. Psalm 2, verse 1, it says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. You know, that, that psalm just came straight to my mind as I was reading this passage this week and I thought, so true, isn't it? Here they are, they're conspiring in secrets against the Lord, against his servants, against his people, against the word. And the Lord's looking down from heaven laughing, isn't he? Because God's in control. It doesn't matter what they think. God is in control. No man can go against God and his will. 
you know, God has already plainly stated what his will is for Paul. He says, Paul, you must bear witness also at Rome. That's what God said, verse 11. And so that's what God has determined. God's will is determined. God's will is going to happen. It doesn't matter what men think. It doesn't matter what they scheme, what they plan. God is looking down from heaven and the Lord is laughing. The Lord is in control. Now, in fact, this whole plot really just furthers the purpose of God. That's all it does. It just furthers God's purpose for Paul. You see, this conspiracy against Paul is used by God as the means to get Paul moving towards Rome. Okay, He's stationary right now, isn't he? He's in Jerusalem. This gets him moving. This gets him on the road now, on his, on his journey to Rome, so that he can end up testifying before Gentile kings and rulers, which is what the Lord said of Paul back in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, when he got saved. The Lord said, He shall testify of me before Gentile kings and rulers. And so all of this is just used by God to start moving Paul towards Rome. It's all God's plan. God's in control. The Lord is Lord over all. He is sovereign. He's king. You know, the Lord's control over all these events, events sorry, is evident in the fact that Paul's family overhears this plot against his life. You see that in verse 16, don't we? It says, When Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered the castle and told Paul. It's Paul's nephew of all people. It's Paul's nephew who hears this plot. Now, this is the only reference we have to Paul's immediate family in the New Testament. Uh, Many believe that once he got saved, he was cut off from his family. And Philippians 3 verse 8 would seem to indicate that, where it says that he suffered the loss of all things. You know, that perhaps he's been disinherited, he's been disowned by his family, cut off. You know, despite this, there's still some affection for Paul amongst his family members. And that's evident here by his nephew who comes to his aid. You know, we're not told exactly how it is that his nephew hears of the plot. You know, perhaps Luke didn't know. You know, Luke's not given that information because he doesn't write it down for us, does he? He doesn't tell us how he came to hear of it. You know, it may be that a member of his family, as I said, was connected to the Pharisees, to the Sanhedrin, and so they knew about the plot and he overheard them talking about it. Or it may even be that he's in Jerusalem for the same reason that Paul was when he was younger. You know, perhaps he's been sent by his family to Jerusalem to be educated in the the law of Moses and to be educated in the sect of the Pharisees, just like Paul. You know, if this is the case, again, it would make sense how he was around them to overhear this conversation, this conspiracy. You know, the point of it all is that this young man was in the right place at the right time to overhear this plot against Paul. It's the providence of God, isn't it? It's the timing of the law. Now, the commentator Welch, he wrote this. He said, As God stationed the ravens for Elijah's preservation, so God planted a young man somewhere near the spot where the 40 Jews plotted against Paul. Sometimes God must smile at the connivings of wicked men. God's wondrous ways are past finding out. The Lord planted this young man in vicinity to overhear this plot. Now, this young man, upon hearing the plot, we we see that he quickly, in verse 16, he goes and he enters in the castle and he tells Paul. He informs Paul of what's going on. 
You know, some have wondered how it is that Paul's nephew is able to get into the prison and so easily talk to Paul. Well, you've got to remember he's a Roman citizen, isn't he? He's a Roman citizen, so he has all these special rights. He has special visitation rights that no one else enjoys. He's a Roman citizen. And this explains also why Paul is able to seemingly command the centurions. Look in verse 17. It says, Then Paul called one of the centurions under him and said, Bring this young man under the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. Paul has a bit of clout here with even the Roman centurions. They respect him. They listen. And they take the young man to the captain with this important information. Now, verse 17 there, Paul calls him a young man. He says he's a young man. Um, Sorry, yeah, verse 17. uh, Bring this young man unto the chief captain. Those words, young man, there, they're a term that refers to someone in their teenage years right up until in their 30s. It's a very broad term. But verse 19 seems to indicate that he's only a teenager and probably a very young one. You see, in verse 19, it says, Then the chief captain took him by the hand and went with him aside privately and asked him, What is it that thou hast to tell me? He takes him by the hand. And so that seems to indicate that this is just a young teenager, probably 12, 13, 14. He's a bit nervous about what he's got to tell the captain. The captain takes him by the hand and leads him somewhere privately so that he might hear what it is that he has to tell him you know, what it is that he knew. You know, Paul's nephew then proceeds to tell him everything about this plot, relay every detail. Look in verse 20. It says, And he said, The Jews have agreed to desire thee that thou wouldst bring down Paul tomorrow into the council as though they would inquire somewhat of him more perfectly. But do not thou yield unto them, for they lie in wait for him of them more than forty men which have bound themselves with an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now are they ready, looking for a promise from thee. He comes before the, the captain, and this young teenage boy relays everything he overheard, and he overheard everything, didn't he? Every single part of the plots. And he gives it all in detail to the, the, the captain of the guard here. You know, he tells how the council are going to ask for Paul. They're going to ask the captain to bring Paul down before them and that Paul is going to be ambushed in the way. You know, he ends verse 20 with the words, he says, now are they ready, looking for a promise from me? What those words indicate to us is that they haven't actually asked yet. Now are they ready to ask for this promise? See, this indicates that the council's request for Paul to be brought before them was yet to be made. Hadn't happened yet. It was about to happen. They were about to arrive. You see, the Lord's timing is always perfect, isn't it? The Lord's timing. Everything is in place for this plot to be carried out. Everything's ready. They're about to make their move. They're about to come in before the captain and ask him, bring Paul before us on the morrow. But the Lord sends this teenage boy in before them to tell the captain of their plan. And he knows everything that they're going to ask. He knows everything. You know, see, once again, we see the timing of our God, don't we? We just see the sovereignty of God. Before they could act, this teenager arrives and ruins their whole plan. Indeed, God's timing is always perfect, isn't it? It's never too soon. It's never too late. It's right on time. You know, the captain responds in verse 22. He says, So the chief captain then 
let the young man depart and charged him, see thou tell no man that thou showed these things to me. He responds by taking the report seriously, doesn't he? He takes this report seriously and he instructs the young man. He says, don't tell anyone what you've told me. Keep it to yourself. You know, we must admire here the integrity and the courage of the chief, chief captain. You see, he could have just assumed that Paul's nephew's lying and ignored it. He could have just ignored it, ignored it altogether. But you know, the other thing he could have done is he could have thought, you know, Paul's been a real thorn in my side. He's caused me a lot of trouble these last few days. Maybe it'd be easier just to let him get killed. He could have decided he was just going to allow Paul to be ambushed, to be killed. But instead, what we see is we see him now immediately act to protect God's servant once again. God uses the Romans yet again to protect his man. And we see that in verse 23 and onwards. Let's just read verse 23. It says, And he called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready. 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea and horsemen three score and ten and spearmen 200 at the third hour of the night and provide them beasts that they may set Paul on and bring him safe under Felix the governor. He acts now immediately to protect Paul and to swiftly take Paul away so they might be protected. And we'll consider the response next time. We'll look at the response to the plot. We don't have time this morning. But you know... Once again this morning, we see the grace of God, don't we? We see the sovereignty of God acting to spare his servant Paul. You know, the heathen may indeed rage and plot against the Lord, plot against his word, plot against his people, but God sees it all. He sees it all. Our Lord God is sovereign. He's in control. Nothing escapes our God's attention. Nothing. Nothing happens without God knowing about it. And, and if it's happening to us, he's allowed it to come for a reason, hasn't he? You know, we have that wonderful promise of Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. If something's coming into our life, God knows about it. It's in our life for a reason. It's there for a purpose. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, with that knowledge, what do we have to fear? You know, uh, in, the, in the, the age in which we're living, where there's so much going on, particularly in the government and things, and there's so many things happening all around us, we have nothing to fear as believers. There's no reason for us to be stressing and fretting about all these things. Yes, it's disturbing, some of the things that they're, they're proposing, some of the things they want to do. We don't need to fret. We don't need to fear. God's on the throne. And we can rest in the wonderful knowledge that nothing escapes his attention. You know, just like he's watching over and taking care of his servant Paul here, God's watching over us. He's taking care of us. We're his people. We're his servants. You know, we just have to, in faith, wait upon the Lord, don't we? Just like Paul. He had to wait upon the Lord, and in God's timing, God delivered him. God protected him. You have to, in faith, wait upon the Lord. I just want to read Isaiah 40. It just came to mind as I was... Starting in Isaiah 40, let's just turn there as we finish this morning. Isaiah 40 and read from verse 27. We looked at it at the conference and what a blessing it was. Isaiah 40, let's just read from verse 27. It says, Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, 
and my judgment is passed over from my God. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary, there is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faints, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Let's praise God for, the, for his sovereignty this morning. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are indeed a sovereign God. You are in control. And Lord, just like you saw everything that was plotted against your servant Paul, everything that was taking place, and Lord, you already had a plan and a purpose, and Lord, you delivered him through the use of his nephew. Lord, we know that you're in control in our own lives. Lord, that every trial, every affliction we face, Lord, is there for a reason. You're in control. You're on the throne. Lord, we know that you are, Lord, watching over us. Lord, help us therefore in faith just to patiently wait upon you. Lord, help us not to fear, not to fret, no matter what's going on around us. We thank you so much for the truth of your word. May we rest in the knowledge of who you are, we pray in Jesus' name.